Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius Podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Pat Armitstead. Uh, she's a multi-award-winning speaker and an author. We're going to talk about stress, anxiety, and well-being at work. Uh, Pat's had like probably one of the easiest lives I've ever seen, you know, based on her bio. Uh, she survived cancer. She turned around bankruptcy, you know, repaying 80000 in two years. Um, unfortunately, she lost her first child. She lost her home and business twice. Uh, violent relationship, 10 car accidents, which that's crazy. You know, so I guess, she, again, she's had one of the easiest, most lucky lives I've ever encountered. Just kidding. Uh, but she's still here, which is a, probably the best testament that I could ever see uh, for someone that's had so much difficulty. So, Pat, thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. And I have to say those 10 car accidents were not my fault. Honest. So you probably, I wonder if you thought, like, God was out to get you or something or give you a oh, message. Oh, yes. It, well, they were yeah, over a period of two years, and all of them were someone ran up the back of me, and it was like, what on? What's the message here? Maybe you should get like a, a, a big metal spike mounted on the back of your car so that if anyone tries to ram you, they'll get impaled or something. What part of well, slow down don't you get? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, if you don't mind, what? why did you survive all this mentally? Why were you able to handle all this when it would have? I mean, even one of these things would have crushed a lot of people. How could you go through so much and still be okay? I was an, uh, initially a nurse, registered nurse for 20 years. And I think 
a lot of my preparation for life uh, and being able to be present and move through, you know, severe adversity, even if not my own, I think a lot of that uh, equipped me along the way. I've always been pretty resilient, but I think I, I started to get present to my life in a way that I hadn't before. Uh, at the turn of the century when all of these things happened over about a four-year period. And it was, I made a, I made a decision, well, <laughs> whatever comes up now, I'm going to go to it. And in that experience, I found a level of flow. I think pain comes in resisting. So letting go of that resistance and choosing to, choosing who and how I would be as I walked through that, I think was a big part of it. When um, my partner, at the end of all of those things, my partner of 20 years left with another woman and his parting words to me were, no, I don't love you and I never loved you. And in that moment, I thought, if that's true, then everything I've ever known is not true. And so I disintegrated. And every movement from there on, having made the commitment, whatever comes up, I'm going to go to it. It was almost like paradox and synchronicity started to appear immediately side by side, challenge and support immediately side by side. And I attribute that now in hindsight, I probably wasn't conscious of it at the time, to my getting another level of presence in my life, presence to to the wonder of who I am. And when joyology came, uh, it was like a conversation with a magician and this thought came through, oh, my God, we've got radiology, hematology, pathology, but no joyology. I'm going to be a joyologist. Well, I was the world's first, so there was nothing to model from. And I did two pilots in aged care as a, as a means to, you know, what's here for me and what can I discover and what can I bring forward from the past and bring into this new practice? And uh, it was very telling because I was still moving through a lot of grief and the 29 was in a rest home and those 29 residents loved me. And, you know, the, my world had disappeared. <laughs> Family weren't speaking, partners gone, everything that I'd known and loved and trusted was no longer there and yet I walked into this aged care facility and there was no judgment from these elderly people and they waited every day for me to come. I used to, I initially did a three-month program teaching them laughter yoga and um, we did that for 90 days. Um, I accredited them as the world's first joyology department and from there um, did another 12-month program isolating all the residents, multiple intelligences and the staff and developing a program for their activities, which I believe is the most extensive and varied perhaps ever created. And it was in that 15 months that I really was, could draw in past wisdom and get a vision of if I can do this with these elderly and infirm people, there's something really big here for me in determining uh, what it is that I could now deliver into the wider world. And so it was at the end of that period I could really draw together 
what joyology would be and and what I would deliver to the world. So I developed a stress, humour and health program and delivered that at Auckland University for about 12 years. I uh, spoke at conferences. I concentrated on doing that. So I had 50 or 60 keynotes a year, all designed to lift spirits and um, shift stinking thinking. And I'm not a comedian, but teaching people to be good-humoured. And for me, being good-humoured is about being appropriately responsive or not, but knowing the fine line between when you can and when you can't. I got a couple of quick questions here. What is joyology? Is that something you invented? And yes. what is it? Well, it's uh, any ology is the study of the, the source of something. So my mission at the very outset was I've just, once that thought came through to me, joyology, it's like, right, well, you know, what's, um, what's the message here for me? And it's like, right. I'm actually here in this moment to help people find joy when it seems there's none. So being able to do that for myself came as a result of talking to people in pain. I did about 100 presentations in that first 12 months, speaking to people with chronic fatigue, MS, other painful, chronic, debilitating conditions, and just saw how just sharing my stories and my own inimicable sense of humour or sense for humour and a level of preposterousness at times was was able to shake them out of their pain, physical and other. How did you transition, though, from being at such a low point to being okay and then to being happy or or full of joy again? Was it serving others or what, what do you think did it for you that got you out of the hole? Well, I was in a very, very depressed state. When, it's, when, when my partner left, that was the final straw. I had, I had worked through and managed all the other things. So uh, I went to my doctor and she wanted to prescribe antidepressants for me. And I said, no, you know, I have every reason to be sad. Um, help me deal with my grief. And she didn't have the answer. And so I found another doctor and I went to a grieving seminar and sat with 400 parents who had lost their children, and the doctor was from America. He had worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and he was showing parents how they could create their own communities once they'd left the embrace of the Starship, the Children's Hospital. And on the same day, about two hours later, I had a conversation with a magician who was inviting me to bring laughter workshops to New Zealand, which was where I was then. So that was the pivot moment. That's when joyology was born. And then I was a bit like a chook with its head cut off, just, you know, spinning around. It's like, oh, what do I do with this? This is crazy. I've just left deep grief and anguish, and yet this magician has had me laugh my head off and he hasn't even told me any jokes. So that was being introduced to laughter yoga. So I liken laughter yoga to being um, the drink you're having when you're not having a drink. Uh, it's like a Clayton's and, you know, research has shown over all these years, the body doesn't know the difference. So whether you're pretending to laugh and doing laughing exercises or laughing for real, the body thinks you're having a good time. And so you get the endorphin effects and other physiological changes. 
in my experience, that alone, though, is not enough. And when I decided to do those two pilots, uh, I found some purpose in my life, even though I was still recovering and grieving and allowing that grief, letting the grief happen, and then seeing how my experiences were influencing these older people just showed me, well, if it can happen here, oh, my goodness, what can happen out in the workplace? So that was the evolving process, I think. Well, when you um, have done speeches for people, is it a one-off or do you have a program? Like is joyology, like, you know, I go to an event and I laugh and I feel better or is it an ongoing program where I can turn my life around if I feel like, you know, all is lost? Yes, I've had uh, a number of offerings uh, along the pathway. Primarily, I use the keynotes as um, points of attraction for um, business people to bring me in when I would run a a workshop. I've worked with um, business managers and leaders, helping them be more empowering and be more good human and good natured, uh, having more empathy, finding more compassion. So leading in an empathic, compassionate, creative way. And especially post this last two years, strategy alone, I don't think, is going to sustain us. And really being able to expand your creative capacity uh, gives us access to more of your intuition and to get more of that experience of flow. So many people this last two years have been saying to me, I feel stuck, I can't seem to get ahead, I feel blocked, and I think they're a bit confounded by the uncertainty. So, um, yeah, all of my teachings have fed into that (laughs) long before these last two years. So do you have a formal course or certification in joyology now? Or, like, what, you know, for people that are listening that are suffering or feel blocked or just, you know, downright depressed or hopeless, what are some of your suggestions on how they can, you know, start climbing out of the hole? I have a creative empowerment program, which um, is a a 12-week pathway to go within, find your access, identify and access your multiple intelligences, find your essence, uh, access your why, you know, what are you here for this lifetime, and look at strengths. And then, you know, find, even if we're in, it's been my experience, even if we're in a job that not is not necessarily wholly satisfying us, if we bring all of ourselves to work, if we bring our multiple intelligences and marry those to the job description, then we're far more likely to find more joy every day as a result of that because we're really tuning into and delivering all those aspects of who we really are. The other thing I think is healing the past it's so easy to squash it down. Uh, Candace Pert, her work informed a lot of my work in the early part. She um, talks about the molecules of emotion and how unexpressed emotion is stored in the body and will ultimately cause disease. So that's been a um, very big part to support people to heal the loss and then find meaning and purpose as a result of the loss. I think that's perhaps the biggest thing to um, see that there, even though, you know, experiences can be very painful, there's an enduring message that can really inform us and give us another 
deeper expression of who we are and a level of certainty about the pathway, even if the external doesn't look very clear at times. Well, what have you seen, again, is helpful to people versus not helpful? You know, what are some strategies you've tried that fell flat versus ones that work surprisingly well? I think a lot of my, my work, I look to interrupt patterns. So, you know, being able to acknowledge where people are at but show them another possibility. And I've got a creative, I'm very creative, and being able to demonstrate I can see what they can't necessarily see. So being able to give them that vision can awaken people to what's possible. I've seen that, um, I don't know, a lot of people lack resilience. I guess I would call it, you know, something happens that's even slightly negative and they just, they're like, I can't handle it, I'm done, they blow up, you know, kind of thing. Have you observed that? And how does this all figure into what you do and, you know, people's anxiety and stress and all that? Yes, so many get trapped by their emotions. I lived in New Zealand for 20 years and New Zealand has the highest use suicide rate in the world consistently for 20 years. And it's very disturbing given the beauty and the wonder of, of that country. It's the most extraordinary place. And I, as I examined that and I looked out at the community, my question to people as I went along that path was, who are we being that young people look out and don't see hope? And the, I saw that I could be a vision for that. First man that I ever bed bathed when I was a student nurse was a man by the name of Bob Hall. A construction crane had fallen on Bob and he arrived in hospital with 35 broken bones and literally flattened. They gathered around him in casualty and shook their heads and pretty much said, poor beggar, he's not going to make it. Four hours passed and Bob was still alive and they risked taking him to theatre. He didn't die on the table as they feared he might. And they were trying him back to recovery and as they took him along the corridors there, the conversation had shifted to, poor beggar, he'll probably be a vegetable. So Bob woke up in recovery and revealed he wasn't a vegetable and the conversation changed again and they said, well, he'll never walk again. Bob Hall was in hospital the whole three years of my general nurse training. He had the odd weekend home. And he walked on two sticks to my graduation ceremony after that three-year training and stood up the back. And when the ceremony proper was over, he waved one of his sticks and came forward and said, I'd actually like to say something. And he came out the front and he had this great big scroll. It was about three feet long. And he opened this scroll and he started reading out all the tricks and pranks that I'd played on him over those three years. Every now and again, my mother, who was sitting in the front row, went, oh, Patricia, you didn't. When Bob, when Bob was finished, he turned to me and he said, you don't know what you did. And I really get that now. I was unconsciously just arriving in my natural impish self. And I saw Bob Hall every day. Every day I was on duty, whether I was rostered on his floor or not. I saw Bob Hall and I really get now, isn't this amazing? Long before I even had mentally intended, I knew commitment and I knew to show up for him. I knew innately 
he needed someone to have his back and and I was that person and back then it wasn't a conscious choice in the same way that I access my consciousness now so you know being able to to see that and to to use your capacity for good humor which is not about being a comedian you can know jokes and funny stories but it, it's more about that good natured self that lets you create that really high trust environment very quickly. And I, I think that's a, a hallmark of all of my work, to be able to get to that uh, more intimate space in a very short period of time. Just lets you forge relationships and forge that trusting space and people people find reassurance there. You know, they sit very safely. Well, have you ever felt like um, your good naturedness backfired? Like the person was just not ready, or they responded negatively to, you know, your good natured attempts to make them feel better? And if so, what what did you do about it? Well, especially on the joyology journey, the first three or four years, New Zealand was so not ready for a joyologist. What's that? So there was a lot of rebuttals and a lot of disdain. You know, you can't. Were you attacked by miserabologists? Yes. You know, the, the opposite of you. I ran I ran for three years over there a humor in business awards program and it never was a, a huge financial success. But it did help me affirm that even though I'm experiencing some resistance, this is extraordinary. One of the winners of um, that award was a company that has a, a bungee jump in Queenstown in New Zealand. And they couch their entire operation in humour and have a 100% safety record. So from the minute you're picked up in the bus, the, man, the driver gets out of the car and flicks open his blind man's cane, taps his way with his hand out towards where it appears the um, people are waiting to get on the little bus, leads them back to the bus As they get on, they can't help noticing the blind driver's instruction manual on the console. He executes a 32-point turn to get out of the car park with the blind cane out the window. And so all of the little touch points along the way to when you jump are couched in this very irreverent and um, oppositional humour. And I just saw the gem then. It's like, look at this business. They have... That is so clever to harness that much humour at every touch point. I call them joy points and to lead people to, you know, trust them enough to jump off, jump off the edge. So that just demonstrated to me how, how right I was. And it was just polishing and refining and continuing on anyway. I toured with Patch Adams through Russia's orphanages in Clown Persona in 2004. Well, Amazing, amazing, what was that like? amazing experience. Pat, when I rang Patch and said I would like to join him, he said, Pat, don't come because of me. Come because you would like to find and spend your clown self. Come because you would like to experience the disparity between rich and poor. Come because you would like to make at least one Russian friend. And so we, there were 36 of us in clown persona. Mine was Doubting Thomas, my alter ego, if you like. And um, I quickly learned over the first two or three days, I don't need the makeup. All I need is the nose. And 
you know, to let myself shine. And being in costume helps you to do that. There's a certain anonymity. And and so it was that we we spent 16 days in orphanages of the poorest conditions, often padded dirt floors, no no light bulbs, no soap, no hand towels, very impoverished conditions. And we had arrived and each of us had encounters that were life-changing. I went into the Blind Institute and we all we all did. And this little girl in a blue velvet dress came towards me with her hand out, took me and sat me down in a room off to the side, which was about nine or ten. And at that point I had no idea what her problems were. And she stood beside me and started playing with my earrings in my left ear. And I experienced such joy and wonder then that I don't think I've experienced since. And I was waiting. I was just this sense of anticipation, something, something's happening here. And then she started to hum. And I knew by the tone of her voice, ah, she's deaf. So she hummed for a time and then she stopped. And I thought, ah, right, my turn. So I hummed. Richard, she and I hummed for 45 minutes till they called me, we have to go now where the bus is here. And huh. in that 45 minutes, I did not have a stray thought. It's the longest I've ever been totally present to somebody. And it was the most joyous, wondrous experience, not informed by language, really. She was obviously picking up the intonation of my voice by, by holding on to my ear. I had nothing to do with the earrings. And, and there we were. So I returned from that trip more connected and more convinced about the certainty of joyology path. And I think when, when you can get that level of belief, then you just continue. And I love the four agreements. Um, so I started to be my word to myself no matter what, no matter what. What are the four agreements? Be your word, never make assumptions. Be your word, never make assumptions. Uh, always do your best. And I'm sorry, I can't think of the other one. That's but okay. I love where be do your the, word. Where do the, yeah, where do they come from, the four agreements, by the way? Dan Rui is a book called The Four Agreements, and he's actually written a, another book now called The Fifth uh, Agreement. So Dan Rui, R-U-I-Z, I think. I think it's Z. Okay. Yeah, amazing. So, okay, so first one yeah. is, can you state the first one and tell me, like, how you interpret it? It's, it's very easy to, like, be our word. If someone asks something of us and we say, yes, I can do that, that's relatively easy to sustain and, like, yeah, I'll be my word on that. We'll commit. It's less easy to be our word when no one else is looking and to be our word for ourselves. While I was in New Zealand, I joined an art group and we wanted to build an art gallery, a place to exhibit for emerging artists. So we got together with the four agreements as a placemat for our meetings and over a period of 12 months, we raised $550,000. We bought an old KFC building of local council for $1, yes, $1, oversaw the refurbishment for it to become a pristine gallery that's been self-sufficient ever since. 
How did we do that? It is amazing. How did we do that? We were our word no matter what. So, you know, we're having meetings every Tuesday morning, you know, 8 o'clock. Well, no matter what, you've got to get there. You can't write down, find another way. And in making that level of commitment, right, beyond what external circumstances show you, demonstrated to me the miracle of what could occur. You know, how, I don't know anyone else who's walked into council and said we want to buy this building for a dollar. You know, it was just like the most audacious thing. And yet, how, how said, did you how did you get them to do it? Well, we just asked the question. <laughs> this is our plan. This is our vision. This is what we've we we had raised that money by then. Um, so I think our story and the fact that we stayed on the page. We'd I mean we hadn't made the plans for the actual building, but we had everything else in place. And uh, we'd also enrolled the local community to provide uh, a range of things once we established a place. So I think the story, you know, the demonstrating our commitment, we had, you know, a couple of treasurers and a couple of secretaries. Some people got off the train. And I sometimes got sufficiently annoyed that I might have got off as well but I knew it was a bigger thing to stay here and face everything that's going on. Let's, you know, work through every single dynamic. And at our meeting, we would call each other uh, on, you know, if things, you know, people hadn't done what they said they'd do, then we called them. And there's nothing like that environment to call you to be uh, operating at a higher level. And, and as you consistently do that, then, then you can see yourself performing differently. And you, what seemed impossible now becomes possible. Wait, so you, you told this, the, whoever had the building, that you had raised money, but you're still asking them to sell it to you for a dollar? And yep. if so, what, what would the money be used for then? So I guess to do the build out, run the whole thing? Yep. And we had a few skilled people, so they were able to see some of that refurbishment. We we had to employ people, <laughs> and uh, council did did support us with accessing the right people for the job. Yeah, it, it's probably one of my proudest moments because for all of those artists, art many artists are poor <laughs> and uh, don't earn. You know, it's not their main income, and to see. To see the joy and wonder as people achieved, you know, we make submissions, we did fundraising, we applied for government grants, um, all of which takes huge investment of time. And to see that can be very discouraging if you don't get a yes. Uh, once you start getting a few yeses and you get the bank balance accruing uh, in a way that you haven't seen before for yourself or, you know, a group, is extraordinary. So the, you know, to 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 be a good leader in leading the group, and to also have them see how it doesn't work. It doesn't work unless we co-create. It doesn't work if we don't collaborate. You know, we can't do alone and separate. I can't afford to be uh, Miss High and Mighty, and you know, <laughs> I'm the one leading the project. It's us. It's us, the collective. And I can't do it without your financial help, with your secretarial, you know, to harness the strengths in the room. And I think that's one of the keys for 
business leaders. They don't quite know how to harness the gifts and strengths that aren't in the job description to um, to bring forth the best of their people. And that's something, especially now, post the COVID phenomena, that I think a new and different way of leading. So CEOs need to become chief empathy officers. <laughs> uh, I'm a, delighted that Gary Vaynerchuk actually has employed a chief empathy officer in his business, and her role is to develop empathy in his 800 staff. You know, it, it, for me, it showcases the the brilliance of where humanity can go now, even in the face of all this difficulty that's out there. There's this, you know, swirling mess at the moment. Um, but look at the wonder of what's occurring in amongst that. And, the, yeah, I just see the, the there's something extraordinary happening and we have to look closely to see it, I guess. If you just look at the surface, it's like, this is not good. <laughs> However, right. okay. uh, yes. What kind of practical things can people do? You know, how do they learn from you and where can they go to find out more about your work and get specifics? I have a philosophy of catching people doing something right, looking for the good. And most businesses that I've worked for catch people out. There are these 360-degree assessments that are done on staff and 12 parameters of success and 12 subsections and here's where you're not performing. And I come totally from the opposite view. In the last 21 years, I have sent over 22,000 pieces of glad mail, affirming, celebrating, congratulating either people in the room at workshops, people at conferences where I write the letters before, <laughs> the night before, and deliver on the day, and also in just encounters that I have on a day-to-day basis. I send three a day, and I committed way back in the midst of that turmoil that I would, you know, begin to turn people's lives around. And how could I do that with some measure of success? So three things a day is not a huge investment, but it is. Because over time, that's an incredible amount of mail, uh, usually physical mail, and it's like leaving a trail in the forest. I still hear from all those people. The, um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, so at the moment, my uh, current website is still my New Zealand website. That's www.joyology.co.nz. Pat at joyology.co.nz is my email. I am living in Brisbane, Australia now, though. Moved back from New Zealand. Yeah, I just wanted to say it's, it's amazing the work you're doing, and it's really cool, and I appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing all this, so thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I love your work, too. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.